Welcome, friends, to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. Personal Legacy and Vision with Paul Lisnick. I have a great guest today for you guys here on Someone Gets Me, and you are going to love him. And there's so much to talk about. I'm not sure we're going to fit it in the show. So get some tea, sit back and relax and get ready to be inspired to follow your vision and create your own personal legacy with a man who is in his life, creating his legacy, following his vision in multiple venues. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. I didn't get my tea, but I, I'll be okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we want the listeners to have tea because we want them to settle in and really take in the wisdom that you have to share with us about vision and legacy and how it all goes together. Fair and enough. So, I know that you're an attorney and um, I have lots of friends who are attorneys who are also creatives. And so I'm like, oh, there's a great synergy. I think there's beauty in that. And so what inspired you to go to law school? So that's an interesting question because I'm going to start off by saying that law you know, law turned out to be not where I wanted to be. And, uh, and so my life now, of course, is television and radio and everything else. And, uh, and yet my education in the law, I think, in many ways is responsible for all of that. So it's going to be a bit of a long answer to your question, but I, I have to take it back to when I went to uh, University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and uh, I was a sophomore in my liberal arts general year, uh, liberal arts general, meaning I have no career, no future. And uh, yes. at the end of that, yeah, at the end of that year, you have to declare a major. So I went to see my counselor and she said, okay, Paul, what's your major going to be? And I said, accounting. And she just looked at me and went, What? And I went, well, you know, my fraternity brothers are in business and they're going to accounting and whatever, and I got to get a job. So I'll, I'll, go to, I'll go to the business school. I'll be an accountant. And she said, I don't respect you, which, you know, Diane, you don't really want to hear from a guidance counselor. Right. But I said, what do, you, what do you mean you don't respect me? And she said, do you want to be 60 years old someday sitting behind a desk doing somebody's taxes? And I'll never forget. I said to her, I'd rather be dead. Now, I'm glad I didn't go that way because I'm now over 60. So, uh, you right. know, Lord knows where that would have taken us. And uh, I said, no. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I love communication, but what am I going to do? Be a communicator? And she said, here's the thing, Paul. I don't know what you're going to do. It doesn't matter. You get one shot in this life to go for your passion, pursue your passion and go for it. She said, mm -hmm. you're in your 20. She said, go be a communications major. And if when you come out, there's no career for you, then Hey, you know, go get an accounting degree. You'll be young. You'll have plenty of time to do it. But if you don't pursue your passion, you will look back on your life one day and saying, wow, I never went for what really mattered. <laughs> so I went and I, but I, by the way, when I left her, I said, well, I'm going to the, I'm going to the business school. And she gave me my file back then. Remember we had paper and yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm walking over to the business school. I had to pass the communications building. And Diane, I, like it was yesterday. I stood there. I stared at that building for the longest time. I can still see myself doing that. And I said, I've got to do this. And just walked in, went up to room 244 of the office and declared my major to be communication. And I added in political science because I thought as long as I'm unemployable, I might as well two, two unemployable degrees. So that's what I did. And, but I loved it so much. I finished my bat, both bachelors in three years. I started, I did my master's in my fourth year. And at U of I, you can teach, which I had always wanted to be a teacher. So you can teach in your, in your graduate school year. So oh, cool. I 
here I am being essentially senior year, but I'm teaching, I'm getting my master's. I went on for my doctorate and I thought, well, law is fun too. Let's do that. So I got a law degree. <laughs> and the truth is when I left, I never wanted to leave. I could have just stayed there the rest of my career. And I basically had people saying, look, you got to go to the real world. So I moved back to Chicago, 1983. And, um, and that's when I, I said, all right, I'm going to practice law for a while. Not because I thought I would stay there my, for, for my career, but I knew it would be important to my credibility. And so I practiced for a few years. Um, and I, I'm going beyond your question now, but the thing is that decision led to all of this because after mm -hmm. practicing for a few years, I got a phone call from a friend who was retiring as one of the deans at Loyola Law School in Chicago. She was one of the deans at Illinois when I was there. She said, you know, I know you're not a fan of practicing law. I'm retiring. You want to go for my job? And so I said, yeah. So I did. Got it. I became one of the youngest deans in the country at age 26. Did that for a while, but I'm still sitting there with, like, all right, I've got this law degree and this communications degree. How do they go together? What do I, I don't want to practice law anymore. What do I do? And I come across this career called jury consulting, um, trial consulting. Now, if, you're, if your viewers watch the show called Bull, which I've never seen, but essentially it's all about a jury consultant. If they're reading my fiction books that I've written in the last couple of years, one called Assume Guilt and Assume Treason, which just won an award for best mystery. I admit that's a plug, but the hero of those books is a jury consultant. So this story I'll make very short because um, I went into jury consultant, even while I was still a dean, affiliated with the office, because back then there weren't a lot of us, but because there weren't a lot of us, guess what? You got the phone calls for the big cases. So we got the phone call for the OJ Simpson case and we worked in OJ. But I was been doing some local television. NBC called at the beginning of the trial and said, we know you do local television. You've been recommended to us. Are you willing to be in the courtroom but not be part of the dream team? Because uh, we did represent OJ, but to do coverage for us on NBC. Now, I, yeah, limousines, Katie Couric, let's do it. So, um, and that's what I did. So for the next period of six, eight months, it was limos in the morning, today's show, nightly news, uh, just the life of television. And of course, I got bit by the bug. And and uh, But we did other cases, Casey Anthony, Phil Spector, you remember the music? Yes. Yeah, the producer, mm -hmm. we had his case, uh, Whitewater, lots of famous cases. And um but anyways, time went on. So that was my world. Um, but then the TV thing began. I wrote a book about my career in jury work called The Hidden Jury. That put me on a little bit of a book tour. Part of the book tour included WGN in Chicago, uh, just to be on in the morning. And The Morning Anchors, it's the number one show in, in Chicagoland. Mm -hmm. It is up from 4 a.m. to 10 a.m. the whole time it's on. The Morning Anchor said, you know, Paul, I, I know you do some local TV. I've seen you cover politics. Why don't you do that for us? We don't have anybody. I'm like, Sure. So since 2008, I've been the political analyst at WGN-TV, doing my own television show for most of those years. Now it's called WGN-TV Political Report, part of the Sunday morning fray. So you see, Diane, the point is for people who in their early, and I know a lot of your viewers are you know, maybe in our age range now or, or somewhere within this range, but uh, and that's okay. The, the advice works. You know, The bottom line is for folks who are in their 20s who might be watching us, pursue your passion because you get one shot at this. But for those viewers who are in their 40s or 50s who are watching us, my view is don't look back on a life to say, hey, this isn't what I want to do. It's never too late to then do something else and pursue your dream. Look at Burt Mustin. Remember the character actor? He didn't even yeah. start television until his 60s. That's my right. story. There you go. See, I told you a long answer to your question. Oh, I love your long answer. And I have many attorney friends who would have a very similar story. They went to law school or like my my roommate in college, who's my best friend, actually went to law school. She was taking political science and communication journalism classes and were an undergraduate and went to law school because that's just what the family expected. And she liked law and it was fun. And now she's doing all kinds of things other than that. And so I know so many people where 
They went after their passion. They got into it. And then other doors opened because they kept saying yes. And now they're doing all these other creative venues. So the trajectory that you shared aligns with what I see and hear a lot from gifted people, from the visionary creative people. Like it's the answer is not just one thing. It's that one thing that leads to another that leads to this. Yes, that leads to that. Yes. And it all comes together and comes full circle by following your vision and your passion and seeking to keep saying yes to that inner calling. Because how would your life been if you didn't turn into that communications building that day? I'd be an accountant doing your taxes. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be in this home. I wouldn't be doing any of the things that's happened in my life. Right. I and, uh, and I'll say one other thing that, you know, I have no journalism background yet. I'm basically in journalism full time now. Um, it was the law degree. It was that thing of interest, well, certainly communication, but the right. law well and political science, all of it that gave me the skills I needed to be an effective journalist, essentially, uh, yep. because it taught me how to ask questions and taught me how to follow up and taught me how to go in depth and taught me how to hear several sides of any issue. I mean, so really, that was the magic direction to go. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. Couldn't tell. I mean, by the way, at the time I was in school, we didn't have a million TV channels that we have now. So right, me, right. That I got to work for NBC and now WGN, which is a major channel, of course, obviously in the Chicago area. And, and, and even nationally, there's a WGN or there was WGN America. Uh, new owners have gotten rid of that. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is, is that, you know, today, of course, anybody that wants to do media go, can go create a, you know, a YouTube channel, can go on to a local cable station. I mean, there's so many ways to do it. So it never even occurred to me in my young days that it would be the direction I could go. Right. And I'm, it's so exciting that you did and that you said yes. And the doors opened and you walked through them. You know, when people offered you the opportunity and it came to you, you said yes. And I tell people all the time saying yes is so vital because you can always change your mind. If you said yes to something and it didn't feel right to you, you could have said no, thank you later. But without saying yes, you don't know. You know, you, you never know where it's going to take you. One of the other pieces of, of my puzzle is that back in 1989, I created a, a high school leadership program with a couple of business partners down in Florida. It was really their idea, but because of my TV work, they were familiar with me and right. they found me and said, you want to do this with us? So it, it, it still exists today. It's a multi-million dollar business. I'm not involved anymore, but um, we started, it was basically 18 days of, of law for high school kids that wanted to practice law. And um, so it was a high school program and it, it, you know, people, it was called the National Law Camp when it first started and people that want to go check it out, Google National Law Camp. We were on the front page of every major newspaper, every tell, I mean, today's show, uh, CBS Morning, everybody covered it. It, it would have never been heard of that there could be a summer camp for kids who wanted to learn law. And I can remember doing um, an educational panel on radio once where, where there were these other people who ran sports camps, because that's what kids did, right? Sports camps. Right. Right. And, uh, and they were all attacking me. How dare you make somebody learn something over the summer? Summer's for fun. And there was this educational expert on the panel. And when it got to him, he said, I'll be honest with you. The only program I've heard so far that's of any value is the law program that Listnik's doing. And, um, uh, and, and of course, since then to this, on this day, national, uh, the National Student Leadership Conference, it teaches law and business and medicine and engineering and anything else you can think of because, you know, not every kid wants to play baseball all summer. Some kids want to explore their future. So almost every program mm -hmm. that I lecture at, because I still go back and lecture, the kids will say, you know, how'd, you, how'd your career start? Whatever. And I tell the story in a different way that I just told you. But I always say, here's the thing, my lightning strike for me, NBC is probably not going to call you, um, you know, and tell you to do something. So, but it's not about that. It's about putting the energy out there, being in the space, as you said, Diane, being in the space you want to be in and doors right. do open for you. Right. 
They will open when you say yes to the possibilities and keep walking forward. It's that momentum, you know, like you were walking, you turned in, you said yes, you said yes, you said yes. And and that I think is like the magic sauce for all of us. Like I, when I look at my trajectory, you know, I started in mental health and then I worked with addiction and now I have three podcasts and I do these things and I work with musicians and I work with athletes and I travel tours and things that I never knew I was going to do way back then at the university of Florida. Um, and if I didn't say yes to all those opportunities, I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have had all these great things happen in my career as well. And I think that that's like that thing. And I hear this consistently with those of us who are living our vision and living our legacy that we say yes consistently. And I probably, I bet you, we say yes more consistently than the average bear. I think as people that put blocks up to that, they're afraid. And I get it. I totally get that somebody's afraid to take a step. They might have family obligations. There may be reasons to say, well, sure, Paul, you're, you're, you were 20. Too. So of course you could take those chances. You know, you didn't have anything to worry about. The truth is I'd take them today because it's just, because if you, when you do what you, you know, there's that book, when you do what you love, the money will follow. It's a great, not a great book, but it's a great title. And, um, and I really believe that you have to just pursue what you're after. By the way, our first program was in, you mentioned Florida. So it was in Boca Raton at Barry university. That was the very first program. If you're familiar with that. I know it very, I know that I lived on the opposite side of the state, but I know Barry University in Boca Raton very well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And so I want to talk some more about some other passions of yours that that I think really show that how you build a legacy and you build your vision is multifaceted and multidimensional. That yes, you um you can go see Paul if you want to on WGN. It's all over the place. And you can can watch all the analyst stuff, and that's that's one kind of thinking. And then there's the kind of fun thinking that has to do with creativity. And I would like you to share a little bit about your memorabilia, the um, your the museum that has your your show in it, and how you became interested in Hollywood and actors and memorabilia and the richness of that culture because there's so much richness there. And how did that start for you? And then a little bit about how that weaves into your the creativity in your own personal world. Loaded question, of course, lots lots to, to talk about there. But but here's the thing: you are correct in noting there are two parts of my world. There's the political part, which is the WGN part, and there's the entertainment or more creative part, which is right. everything else. I also am an anchor for Comcast, um, which has its own network and that kind of thing. So for that, just for your viewers to understand, I, I host a show called Broadway in Chicago Backstage. Uh, which is a lot, kind of like an inside the actor studio show. We do it in front of a live studio audience, hundreds of people. I sit with the cast and creative. So everything from Kinky Boots to Hamilton to Dear Evan Hansen and whatever the big shows are that are coming in town, we're going to we're gonna do a half hour TV show in-depth interview about it. Um, so there's sort of a two fan bases, if you will. There's the people that know me from the political world who send me hate email all the time, even though I'm neutral on the air, they don't care. And um, and then there's the entertainment people who you know really appreciate that. So the, the tie to the memorabilia and, and that kind of thing is twofold. I mean, I'm in my library right now. And so what's behind me, the pictures on the wall are mainly all political. So I, I, I've always been fascinated as, about having something, owning something from history, which can then be yours. And so part of what's behind me, there's a there's a lock of, of Lincoln's hair, Lincoln's hair that was cut from his, his deathbed, uh, Washington's hair, Kennedy's hair. I'm not a hair. I don't have a thing about hair. It's just that <laughs> the notion of 
I could actually have a, some strands of Abraham Lincoln's hair. It's unbelievable. And yes, right. it comes with provenance. We don't have to get into how I know it's authentic, but it's all authenticated. But not only that, documents signed by FDR, um, on and on. And then there's a little thing behind me, um, which has Lucille Ball's actual sunglasses. Um, I do a podcast where I do politics and entertainment. And I had Lucy's daughter on recently called named Lucy Arnaz. And I said, Lucy, I, I got to tell you, I'm a crazed fan because I have the the, 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 the napkin at your mother's second wedding. I've got <laughs> actually right next to me. I'm just going to pick this up. This, is Lucy's, this was Lucy's makeup case, um, her makeup that she used um, that she kept in her driver's car all the time. So it's just fascinating. On the table, there's makeup from uh, Wicked, Alphaba, uh, the green makeup that they go. So the thing is, anytime I find something that I'm going, that's just cool. Um, if I can afford it, whatever, then I do it. Next to me, I have a, a Bible signed by Martin Luther King Jr. So it's history, it's entertainment. Um, and and yeah, I have the phone from the living room of I Love Lucy. I've got the phone from the living room of Dick Van Dyke, a phone from Andy Griffith. I'm a 60s kid. I, I'm all, you know, I kind of grew up in the 60s and 70s. And so I, I just, again, the notion of, and I've met so many of those people, sometimes just from going to collector shows uh, and would meet some of them there. But the thing is, but sometimes not, sometimes because of the TV work I do and because I can interview these people on podcasts, it, it's gotten me to be from as friendly with Jim Neighbors for many years before he passed away. Uh, we'd go out to dinner here in Hawaii. He would take me to dinner. Sometimes people are just really nice. And, um, uh, you know, maybe it's tougher to do. I don't think Tom Cruise is having me over for dinner, but, you know, but, but when you're together with some of the, the folks uh, like Kathy Garber, who I know is a friend of both of ours from family affair, you know, they're open to making friendships and, and, and people today and appreciate the fact that they were, that people were fans of theirs years ago. And, and I guess because my interests are sincere and I work in the industry, member of the same union, it makes the possibility of those relationships. I wouldn't be doing this if I was an accountant. I got to no. go back to that, right? Uh, hey. I wouldn't be talking to Lucy Arnaz about her mother if I was. I might be doing her taxes, but I wouldn't be. Uh, wouldn't be talking to her about all that great stuff, right? And, and Lucille Ball had a house in Sarasota. Yes. And uh, when I was growing up, and so, um, and I lived uh, really close to there, and our yacht club was right there. I raced boats at that time, and so I remember seeing Lucy and all those kinds of things from way back then. And and I think about it because I'm a '70s kid. I I tell everybody I have mid '70s syndrome. That I love the mid '70s music, the '70s actors and actresses, and and the things that matter. I was just up in Mount Airy, and you know, reminiscing well, I mean, on the I love that, and and reminiscing on the um. Andy Griffith's show and, and all of that kind of thing. And, and I, I love the energy of it. And so I think it's really exciting that, that those things meld together for you in a way that is really fun. Like, cause you can tell you just have a blast doing it. It's not well, just I, like, I you know. and, you, and you triggered, I have to tell you this because you mentioned Mount Airy and I've been there as well. I bought the keys as a prop, the keys to the jail cell from Andy mm -hmm. Griffith. And so I met Don Knotts and Betty Lynn one day had lunch with Betty. And I said to Don, Don, can you verify these? Were these the keys to the jail cell? And he goes, you know, Paul, it's a prop. He goes, I can't. He says, but give me a piece of paper. So I gave him my business card and he wrote Barney's keys, Don Knotts. He goes, now they're authentic. Don't worry about it. Uh, and I thought, well, how great was that? And by the way, the reason for the Lucy interview wasn't just because I'm a Lucy fan. They recently started to, they were, they were newly discovered for the rest of the world, but Lucy Arnez knew about it. Her, did you know her mother did a radio show back in 1964? No. She, she interviewed Gene Kelly and, and, and 
you, Bing Crosby, and I mean, you name it, um, everybody in 64 to 66, Andy Griffith, by the way. So these interviews were just discovered and put out and made public. It's kind of a podcast now that people can get on Sirius XM. And when I, when I saw the channel and started hearing these interviews just this morning, I listened to Red Skelton. You're getting this stuff from 1964 and Lucy's questions, you know, what makes a good wife? And, and um, you know, and do you tell your wife what to do and who runs your, with all this pre-feminist, you know, feminist or, you know, women's liberation, whatever you want to call it. It was before all of that happened. So it's amazing how sexist and how whatever those interviews are, they're fascinating to listen to. And that's when I said, I've got to get to Lucy and I've got to do an interview. And again, because of what I do, guess what? I got to her and she agreed. Sure she did. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I'm going to have to look up those interviews too. So now I'm a fan of your show already. And um, just meeting you, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to listen to this show. This is so fun. Now I'm also an author. We're both authors. Um, I'm actually getting ready to send my eighth book to edit. And of course, when I saw that you were an author and I saw that are all 14 of the books, mystery books, no, the first, or just the last two, the first two, just the last two, the first 12, again, a method behind the madness. The reason I wrote all my other books that, that started, there's, there's a motivational book called quality mind, quality life. There's books on negotiation and there's legal books on deposition skills. I always believe that because I was so young when I was doing a lot of things, I was doing seminars at age 25 and 26. <laughs> I felt I had to have a book for credibility purposes. So I wrote just a series of books, interviewing and counseling, all of these things that I lectured on to give myself the credibility and people still use them. I University of Arizona just ordered copies of my jury consulting book uh, that they use in their class. So that's what triggered all of that. The fiction books were for fun. And um, and just a way of playing out. They're set in Chicago. That's where I live. They're set in the neighborhood. So, you know, they, they get a lot of good play from people here in the city because they literally one reviewer said it's like taking a bus down Michigan Avenue and having all these places identified. It's such the comfort of home. So uh, and as I said, assume treason, um, which I think was not as good as the first book, but but it won uh, Best Mystery for Indie Awards this year. So who knows? Nice. I'm good. I'm going to read those. I'm always looking for for good books. And I love them when they're set in a, in a real place like that. Like there's a lot in Florida that were set in my neighborhood in Sarasota and different places. And, sure. and um, I've been to Chicago a few times. I have so many friends from Chicago. I feel like I should like just be there. Like everywhere I look, like there's all my friends are all from Chicago. So I'm, I was wondering if they were all mysteries. It makes more sense to me in a way that some of them were more technical and things like that. And, um, and I just, gosh, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. I was writing this book I'm working on. It's called Someone Gets Me. Um, how intensely sensitive people make it in an insensitive world, which is also the title of my show as well and other right. things. And I have community with the someone gets me. And then I say, yeah, I want to write something different, like a novel or something, a short story or something like that. And so you just inspired me, you know, like, I think I'm going to just follow that little train of thought to kind of see where it's going. Well, and, you know, for me, the characters are based on, you know, the names are all people in my life or at the TV station. The main character's name, Matthew, that's my dog's name. Um, so everything is very personal for me uh, in terms of making that happen. But I was also lucky because I'm on WGN. Um, when the books came out, I was able to go on and promote them uh, and talk about them. So I would do some book signings. They promoted in the morning and people would come to the book signing because because WGN is the number one morning show. So, you know, that's, that's always a real helpful too. So right. that's part of the reason that inspired me to do it. I knew there could be a, a reach and a, some assistance in the marketing. Cause as you well know, um, mm -hmm. when authors write books, not a lot of people are out there to help us. Right. Right. There isn't. And a lot of people go, yeah, good for you. And then that's as far as it stops or, right. or whatever. And, and I like, 
I write because it's a passion for me to write. And so what inspired you to, to write novels after having written the technical books? Like how, how did that kind of piece of inspiration come in? So one more thing I have to say before I answer that question, which is my favorite thing that was sarcastic because right. what I really don't like <laughs> is when I, whenever I've written a new book, I'm sure you experience everybody that knows you wants the free copy. Where's my free copy? Where's my free copy? So let me put this out publicly and just say this, you know, when friends of mine write books, you write a book, people I know write a book. I'm the first person to go onto Amazon and buy it and, and bring it to them and say, please sign this for me. But I never, because free copy should be going to the PR people and the, the radio, you know, I mean, when I, when I interview somebody, mm -hmm. I just interviewed Karen Tumulty on her book on Nancy Reagan. So the, 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 the uh, publisher sends me a copy so I can read it. That's where the free books go. But when your friends and family ask you for them, I get it. But at the same time, hopefully, maybe if they're listening to us, watching us, they'll sit back and go, hey, you know, you're right. This yeah. is my this is my family member, my friend. I'm going to support them. So um, that was a public service announcement. <laughs> and I totally and I totally agree with you on that, Paul, by the way. It's, it's like when my friends write books or if somebody writes a book, I buy the book and ask them to sign it. I would never ask them for a free book. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it doesn't go through my mind. I, I want to support them and I want to buy the book. And then I go back and I do a review of the book. Right. Now, look, there's certain people in your life. My parents, I've lost my parents recently, but certainly my parents got free copies of all my books, right? My brother gets a free copy. <laughs> right. Well, that's book. different, so right? I'm not, but, but you know what? My brother also bought one. I mean, that's the thing. If people who love you in your life want to take care of you, you know, even if they get a free copy, you say, I'm buying one. I'm going to give it to somebody else because right. I want to help you. Uh, so right. the, ins the inspiration, um, part of it was just the challenge. It took me 10 years to write Assume Guilt, the first book, because I, I threw away three different versions of it um, until I, and I, I work with a woman, her name is Virginia McCullough, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about her, promote her. She lives in Wisconsin, but I've known her for 25 years, but with all my books, she, for me, she's an editor, but for some people, she's a ghostwriter. For some people, I mean, she's recorded whatever you need. She herself is well-published, but she helped me so much because she helped me find my voice. You know, my, my inclination maybe as a lawyer was I was writing in the third person. And, and after a while, she's like, no, no, you need to speak from the first person voice. So it was that kind of help, uh, which is why right. it took me so long because I kept redoing it, redoing it. She'd read it and give me advice. And, um, but, but part of it was, I think, you know, this is really the truth. I always had the first line of my book in my head and I had to write the line. I had to write the book to go with it because I always envisioned a book that started off with a sentence. We, we, the members of the jury, find the defendant guilty. And of course, that person would not be guilty. But I wanted it to start with, we find the defendant guilty. I didn't know what the plot was. I didn't know anything. I just know I was starting it there and whoever it was wasn't guilty. And it, 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 be, it became, the first book became a tale of murder and mystery involving a, a governor. It's all set in Illinois. It's fiction, but it's about corrupt politicians, which people in Illinois go, are you sure that's fiction? Um, <laughs> And I did give a copy to the governor um, because, you know, I'm not stupid. And uh, and so I gave it to him, our current governor. And I said, Governor, I said, I, this is a copy of my new book. I said, it's about an Illinois governor who may or may not have committed murder. However, I want to tell you that I finished this book before you took office. And right. <laughs> he just laughed and he says, oh, it was about my predecessor. So, you know, um, but but I was glad I did that and, and uh, took a picture of him holding the book. You know, that's always critical when you when you have people of note, famous otherwise. I have everybody like Rahm Emanuel, whoever it is, I have them holding my book and taking a picture with them. And what happened was when I would post those, people started sending me pictures that people that bought the book just would send me pictures. So I would post people. 
you know, they didn't have to be famous, just somebody. And I would always turn into something cute on Instagram. People can follow me on Instagram. And, uh, you know, and I'll just say, you know, oh, be like this lawyer over here. Be smart. Get yourself a copy of the book. I would always turn. And so people would do one person held it upside down. They start doing goofy things with it. And that got to be fun. Yeah, it's really that's really, really fun. Yeah. That's great. So what do you do for fun? You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> that should be an easy question. Theater. <laughs> Because everything is work for me, but because I don't consider, I don't use the word work. Um, when right. I go to the, when I go to the studio to do you know WGN here, I, and I, I'm I, I never say I'm going to work ever because it's work is a negative thing for me. I think right. people that work aren't happy. So I go to the studio in the morning, or I go to the studio in the afternoon, and so because my theater is passion for me, I'm not an athlete. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big athlete or anything, but I can't get enough theater. So. Because my podcast, like, for example, a new episode launched today. It's about two um, uh, of the cast of Matilda, the musical. Oh, yes. Um, Anna, but that, so that's launching. And then uh, they, a world premiere of 13 Days based on the Bobby Kennedy book. Um, and, and so it's a it's two theater companies. And, of course, I'll be attending those openings. So, you know, even technically, I suppose one could argue that's works. I'm going to go to the openings for things I'm doing interviews about. But um I'm 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 sort of well known in in theater community and and I should say my other passion is animals, uh, dogs and cats and so if you visit the anti cruelty society here you will see the adoption room named for me um, with you know pictures and plaques on the wall of me my kids the dogs um, I named the outside memorial tribute wall as well and over at a place called Paws which has dog town and cat town. It's kind of like for the rich suburbans because uh, right. every dog gets its own room and it's great. It's great. Um, but I've named a couple of rooms there, you know, after after my pets and stuff. So I, I would say and maybe this is something we could talk about just before we when, when we were done. But I believe in giving back. That's really important to me. And so, you know, my kids may not be wealthy in the future, but um, but I'm making sure that what well, that my time on the earth is spent both while I'm alive, while I can appreciate donating things and giving things and naming things. I named seats in theaters, whatever, whatever it is, the bar at one of the, the place called the black ensemble theater here, because I really want to encourage that kind of their mission is to eliminate racism in our society. Um, so it's all about giving back. And, and, you know, in my will, when I'm gone, there's going to be a lot of uh, happy university people, dog people, theater people, um, because that's really where everything's going to go. I think giving back is the key essential thing of somebody leaving their legacy is to give back as we're going along down the road. And, and you yeah. just described that. In fact, I have goosebumps. Like that is to me what leaving a personal legacy is, is like being aware and being conscious and giving back with intention and motive to the things that really sing to your heart like the animals and the theater and creatives and whatever it is, you know, I have a lot of love for academia and things like that and universities. And, and uh, that's where I give back to like freely. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, I don't use the word work either. I'm just always having fun. <laughs> like whatever it's it true. is, I'm having fun. <laughs> and by the way, everything, everything you say triggers things for me. So two, two quick things I have to mention at, at the anti-cruelty society. Um, and again, part of being a public figure is that a state representative um, was was there looking at cats, not sure she was going to get one, was put in an interview room where my picture's on the wall. And she then put something on social media saying, Paul, when I saw your picture, I knew that was a sign I needed to adopt this cat. And so, you know, so doing good work that way. And finally, in academia, because you're right, I didn't emphasize that. I should say that that building which housed the communication department, which was my home, it's called Lincoln Hall. And some years back, they completely renovated Lincoln Hall. And so I just, I there, I decided to donate money to name two 
conference rooms, faculty conference rooms. Uh, and also when I was teaching there, the TAs used to work in what was called room eight. It was a below ground place where I'm sure you're going to die from asbestos inhalation at that time. Um, but part of the revamp was there is no more room eight. It is now, a ca- it's a cafe, a coffee. It's not underground anymore. It's it's like this more open area, even though you take steps down and right. it's now the Paul Lisnick Cafe. And I wanted to name nice. that because that room was so important to me. What's really the theme, this is not an ego, well, you know, part of it might be an ego thing. But, but because I don't, I don't think I'm going to find joy saying, you know, when I'm dead, man, there's going to be that conference room. I want to take my kids to that conference room. I want to go have coffee in that thing and just know I'm making a difference. And the, because I am a public figure, trying to use what I've done to encourage others to make a difference. That's yes. what I'm about. That's what I'm trying to do. So for those who are watching saying, oh, what an ego, he wants to see his name on things. Okay. Um, but if in, the, <laughs> if in the process, people are also donating and giving and doing this themselves, because I always tell people, you don't have to wait till you're dead to do things. You can do things while you're alive, smaller increments, spread it out over time. That's how I do stuff, you know, and, and just make a difference, even if it takes you years. So- that's important. Exactly. And I think that's totally true. And you're building memories when you take your family that the memory of the place and then you name it to honor it. And then you take family members, you take friends there or you go there yourself and you get to have the feeling of the story. And our lives are a big story. And so I always ask people, when are you going to start signing your masterpiece? And when are you going to honor the story? And that's the way you honor your story. And, and I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, I, I would say every year, in fact, the, you know, I, I've, uh, well, whatever, I give a lot of money to U of I and stuff. And, and my advice, my financial people sort of said, you know, these large gifts you do, maybe start to put a cap on it because, you know, you're getting older, uh, you know, and, and, and life is going to change, but we know it's important to you, but just start to think about it. So, you know, now as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm happy I did a lot of these grander things. Uh, I, one of the things I also did at U of I, when I was a graduate student, one of the graduate professors said to me, you know, listen, Nick, you're never going to give back to the school. All you're going to do is go be a rich lawyer one day and go practice law. And I looked at him and said, I'm going to make you this promise. If I am ever successful in life, I will name a chair in this department for the law and communication, which was my field of study in an area I actually studied. There wasn't a law and communication field before I got there. So that field, and he kind of laughed. And guess what? A few years later, I did it through an insurance policy. So it's not not like I had all that money to, to endow a chair, but I got an insurance policy, which will endow that chair when I'm gone. And my greatest pleasure was to go into his office and go, I set up the chair, buddy. And he just sort of, you know, I was kidding. And I went, I wasn't. And uh, that was a great moment. (laughs) That's great. That's wonderful. So on kind of a little bit of a different note, but has to do with creativity a little. What's the most memorable food you've ever eaten? Uh, So I I have to go with just immediate thinking. And so there, um, there are these egg rolls from a place called the Pekin House. I know I'm supposed to say something grander than that, but I'm a really simple, I'm a really simple person. I'm a spaghetti, pizza, hamburgers, chicken. So that I even said egg rolls was, was pretty daring for me. But there was a place in Chicago called the Pekin House. It was there for 70 years on a street called Devon in, in, near Western. And my parents, it's where we went every Sunday, right? I'm Jewish. Jewish people go for Chinese food on Sundays. That's kind of part of the religion. And so we would go to the Pekin House on Sundays and I would only eat the crust. The crust was really good. And as the years went on, I got to eat the whole egg roll and there's a secret ingredient in their egg rolls, which is peanut butter. So I'll put that out there for any Chinese chefs who are out there who wonder what makes an egg roll taste good. It's peanut butter. If you're not allergic to it. And so, um, 
anyway, so I would have these my whole life and the Pekin house went out of business and it was just a horrendous, I mean, I can't tell you how terrible that was. Certainly for the town, I grew up in Skokie, Illinois, where the town I grew up was like, we all went to the Pekin house for, for Chinese food and they're gone. But it, time goes on and I find a member of the family whose family owns another restaurant in DeKalb, Illinois, about an hour and a half away. And so I track him down. And I said, are you, is this the family that made the Pekin House egg rolls? They're world famous. And he goes, yeah, that's my family. He says, we make them here. I went and I went, you're kidding. So I now order. So even though the restaurant is long gone and now his new restaurant due to COVID, unfortunately, didn't make it either. But um, I would buy 12 dozen of them and he would drive them in because he'd bring them to WGN. He was a huge WGN fan. I said, you bring them to me and I'll let you meet Tom Skilling, famous weatherman. And, and we'll tour you around the studio. He was more than happy. And he'd bring a tray of cooked ones just to pass around. And anybody who's there who grew up where I did, they went, those are Pekin House egg rolls. Give me one of those. Um, so that's one of my favorite foods. And, and the fact that in, in my freezer right now, man, I've got about 10 dozen left and, and I'm still in touch with him because he said he'll find a way through some cousin's restaurant to make this happen in the future. So that's my favorite food. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, has there ever been any time in all of your career where you were walking around and people didn't understand you and and maybe you felt disconnected from the people around you or were you able to kind of stay connected? Well, th there's two ways that rears its head. When I was a, a high school student, I was very active in student government, which is why the law and the power, that sort of was what people thought I would do, run for government or something. I was very active in student government. And um, I mean, so much so that it was like, I mean, I, I was president of the school for two years. Nobody would run against me. It was it's just one of those things where it's like too much power for a kid. Uh, and right. it was kind of a joke that I was running the school. But I went through a real serious depression, even in those younger days. And I can remember, and I would mm -hmm. do some theater too. I mean, I'd have just a lot of luck. I would, I would welcome the teachers at the beginning of the school year as president of the school. And the director came up and said, you don't do theater. I want you to try out for the show. And all of a sudden I'm getting leads in the shows that he's doing, um, like play it again, Sam. So I went through this sort of uh, things are too good. I what? Why is all this happening? And I was kind of freaking out. Um, mm -hmm. So some teachers kind of you know saw that. Um, mm -hmm. And even though they weren't my teachers, but they were people who knew me, uh, and they worked with me to uh, you know to just kind of find some inner strength and 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 realize that um, that was going on was good stuff, and and it didn't really have to be bad. The more current kind of um, challenging thing is that because I do television, that is um, that creates a persona. And um, it's, you know, it's partially me, but it's not me. And my job is I'm a political analyst, not a commentator. So when I'm on TV, I present both sides. Now, that was easy to do in the Obama years. But in the Trump years, um, and I'm not talking about that it was tough for me to do what I had to do, but there was so much dissension in this country, certainly in, in, in everywhere you go, and Chicago is no different, that no matter what I did in every, every morning show, every show I'm on, uh, whatever I would say, if it sounded anti-Trump, I would say, and the Trump supporters would say this. I, I, that's what I have to do. Everything is balanced. Um, producers get it. Everybody I work with say, no, you, you're you mm -hmm. great at that. You do what you got to do. But viewers, especially, really, I'm being honest, it's the Trump supporters. They don't hear the other side and, um, and, 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 and aren't willing to hear the other side. And I know I'm being political when I say that, but it's my experience that I'm sharing with you. And I don't care that they hear the other side. What do I care? I don't They can do what they want. I respect what they want to think but it's the hate emails and the hate. And this happened oh, to me just yesterday. I mean, this is, this is new of some guy who I, I had a, I was on in the morning and he took a screenshot and behind me, I have a series of Ron Lee, Jerry Lewis statues, um, which were made back in the nineties, eighties. 
but I also have one which is Mount Rushmore and it's got Bozo on there. And Bozo is, that's the WGN icon. Bozo Circus was WGN right. in Chicago. Right. So he took a screenshot and went onto my uh, Facebook page and he said, who's Bozo, Biden or Trump? And I always take the Howard. I said, no, no, actually, no, actually he said, who's the clown? And I said, no, no, that's actually Bozo. I work with WGN, right? So that's just a tribute to Bozo. And he responded by saying, you're not going to get away with that. Which And he starts attacking. And I mm. took the high road and said, look, it's really a piece of art. It's really Bozo the Clown. It's really about WGN. So my point is, there's a lot of people that, I mean, I think have mental issues and stress and, and they need help. And they're taking mm. it out. Dude, I'm just a guy on TV who tries to present an analysis of politics. I'm not taking sides. But you can't convince them of that. And so that's that's a current challenge that, you know, you just have to let it go. You walk down the street. Oh, I love you. I love you. I love your work. I love your work. And once in a while, asshole, you know, what are you going to do? Right. So you have to, to develop your thicker skin. And yeah, there's I'm a because mo- I'm pretty sensitive. So I, I try right. to pretend that I do, but but it's tough. It is tough. It is tough. And I can see it in your face how tough it is. And, and I can only imagine that. Like, and, and, um, I've had stuff happen like that in my life, but not to that extreme. And it hurts. And you, here you are trying to follow your vision and you're trying to do the very best you can and you get attacked for it. And that's very painful, especially for sensitive people who are visionaries, who are trying to do something good in the world. It's just really educate. hard. To me, it's all about education. It goes back to always wanting to be a teacher. And I see what I do on television now as education. Now, you know, the plus side to that is that I'll, this happened last week. I'm walking down the street and some guy sees me and says, can I take a picture with you? I said, sure. <laughs> and, you know, the friend I'm with, give me the camera. I'll take the picture, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> thing. and it's like, so that's nice. That's like, you know, thank you for watching. Thank you. You know, that's a good experience. It's a nice yes. experience. And I, and I'm always friendly as Kathy Garber, our mutual friend. I used to be friends with Jackie Mason who passed away recently. And <laughs> when we would go to dinner, people would come up and just, you know, Miss Jackie Mason, Jackie, and they grab him and they all these things. And I said, Jackie, how do you how do you deal with this? And he goes, Well, you had a thick accent, right? He goes, well, yeah. celebrity, they love you. This is what I got to do. They're fans of mine. And I and and I get that. I mean, I really I respect the fact that he didn't yell at anybody, he didn't say get away from me, because he goes, Without them, I'm nothing. And uh, mm-hmm. and so I, I'm nice to everybody, even the guy who was being mean to me the last couple of days. I just took the high road the whole time, just right, you know, doing what I right. can do. Right. Right. Exactly. And there's a lot of emotion around that. And when you're following your heart, though, and you have integrity that way, it makes it a little bit more easy. You know, like I can take the high road because I'm sitting here and doing my thing and in integrity. And, you know, that's just the way it is. But I can I can feel you. I can feel that like, oh, man. Um, Okay, so when you got a lot of stress going on in your life and life is stressful in general anyway, these days, what things do you do that help you ease the stress? So when the COVID thing started, I got, because I'm a hypochondriac. So when the COVID thing started, it was really bad for me. I mean, I developed every symptom you could possibly have um, in my head. Um, and it was, and it was difficult. So I, I actually went, you know, I, I put myself in therapy and working through some things for a very short amount of time, even took a, uh, I don't remember what the, I don't, you know, I want to, I, it's a drug, but I don't want to say that it was very minor, you know, and mm-hmm. mild kind of a thing. Um, right. but it's something where my doctor just said, just, you need to do this for a little bit and just calm yourself down. And, right. um, and, and I was very, you know, I did it every few days. I'm, I'm a wimp about all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. but really it's been about, it's about, about therapy and, and, um, I guess watching TV, but you know, I look, I'm, I'm one of those people that wears my heart on my sleeve. So I, I, I want to have a magical answer for it. Oh, when I'm stressed, here's what you do to get rid of it. Just blow up a balloon. But I, but 
that doesn't that doesn't work for me. I, I readily admit that I, I wear it on my sleeve. I just have to work through it. And here's the thing: if my stress has to do with somebody else, like I'm worried that I offended somebody, or and which happens, you know, I've said something. Oh, I don't know how that came off. Then I will call that person, go to that person. I will do something and address it because I need to clear mm. it up. And by the way, nine and a half times out of ten, I was wrong. You know, like I'm not offended. I wasn't whatever. It was nothing at all. But because it irks me, I need to clear it up. I can't just move on like it didn't happen or I didn't say it. Right. That's a really good point because I've done that before where I, it sounded funny to me and whatever it is. I called my friend and say, did what I say? You know, I started trying to clear it up and they were, I think they were looking at me like, what are you talking about? Like I even had to remind them of what happened. Like it was so not in their radar, but until I took care of it in me, it would have just kept nagging at me. I, yeah. Yeah. It's true. That's that's the healthy way to handle it. And by the so, way, if it is a problem, if somebody says, you know what, I really didn't appreciate that, then let's talk it through for a minute because right. I don't want that to be a block. I love you. I don't want that to be a block. So, you know, that was a bad choice of words on my part or I'm sorry, whatever. I mean, whatever the explanation is, but talk it through because in the end, you're probably going to hug it out. Right. Right. And that's a lot healthier and, a, and makes a lot more sense in some other things. So where do you see our culture going? You've been in this in the TV and in the entertainment world for a long time, and you have a great appreciation for the, the 60s and 70s and in that time era, as I do. And and I sit back sometimes and I just kind of wonder, like, where is all this going? And do you have any sense or thoughts or ideas that you feel like sharing about that? I think that's a political question for me, the way I hear it. Okay. Um, because I mean, on the on the entertainment end, I could say, will there ever be another Andy Griffith show? And the answer is no. You know, somebody just the other day, I'm on Facebook on you know different like groups of Andy Griffith or Lucy, that kind of stuff. Because I love that. And and somebody said, you know, if they made Andy Griffith show today, would it be successful? And the answer is no. No. Well, the reason it works today is because people who were around then have a great a- appreciation for those shows, that life, that humor. We can relate to it. Young people, kids, and my, my kids are in their twenties. Sort of, you know, almost, and they don't have any. They have no interest in that. It's it's just not not. So it's it's that nostalgia not thing. thing that works for me. It's not their thing. Um, the same way, you know, music I think works the same way. You know, unless you're the Beatles, and then you're you're good with everybody, no matter when. But the political piece of that, um, I'll be honest, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, this this anti-democratic with a small D sense that is in our country right now, this notion of the government is no good. And, and I mean, it's, it's astounding. If you could, if you would have told me back on January 7th, that of this year, that a few months from then, the people who stormed the Capitol, who I consider to be insurrectionists, I'm being a little political, but I said this on the air. So if it takes a position, it takes a position, you know, to me, they were, they were insurrectionists. The fact that that had, that has been turned around that they were heroes, that they were fighting for for freedom, that the FBI, the CIA, the government, those are the enemies. It is stunning that Mm -hmm. there is probably a third of the country who think that way, and there's no talking them out of it. So, you know, until, in my view, the Trump wing of the party um, finds a more moderate voice to come back and say, you know what, there are such things as Republicans and we use, we can run the country and, you know, we can get along with the Democrats and we can move this country forward. And the way things, you know, the way things used to be, uh, I mean, I think as long as Donald Trump is going to run again and he's around and his kids and whatever, um, I just think it's going to get worse. Do I think we're here 10 years from now? I don't know. You know, 20 years from now, we probably worked through this. Um, there'll be a lot of books written about you. You'll write them. I'll write them. But a lot of books right. about these days. How did this ever happen? 
But right. um, I, I, it's stunning to me that we are where we are and, and that it's going to continue, I think, for some time. Trump gave people a voice. So people, you know, I'm sure you have Trump supporters who are watching this and they're hearing me be negative uh, anti-Trump. I'm not being anti-Trump. You know, I'm just, once again, I'm trying to, I'm just speaking factually that Trump mm-hmm. ignited something in people. He, he stirred something in people that was already there. He was yes. a spark for something that was there, but it, but it emboldened them to say, yes, we're going to do this. And um, so I guess the good part of that is p- people are pursuing the way they want things to be, but you know, there's a way you do it in a, in a fair and free democracy. And it's just not happening right now. And hopefully that'll work itself out. Right. Yeah. And I agree. I think that's what happened. I, and that he gave a voice to the thing that was brewing underneath it all already. Yeah. And it, that's just how it came out. And so it's time for people to do their inner work and their healing and to really step back and say, is what I'm seeing and what I think real? Yeah. Or is it a story I've made up or, or what is going on with that? And so they, I've heard the comment said many times that musicians and artists are the ones that kind of document the culture. And kind of show us away in the poets and those kinds of things. And so when you look at the current state of like Broadway and what's going on and the different plays that are being written in the music that's out there, is there any of the current day music that kind of sings to your heart? Well, there I'm old fashioned because, uh, you know, when I'm playing my Alexa, I wasn't going to say the name because she can hear me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I'm playing that, I'm, I'm playing jazz. I'm playing standards. I'm playing Strice. I'm a huge Streisand fan. I've gotten friendly with Barbara's sister, by the way, Roz Kind, who sounds just like her and actually sings very much like her. And um, uh, and so and she's done my podcast and and uh, have gotten to know her some. Uh, but anyway, so it's that sort of traditional stuff. And I, I'm asked a lot by young people, you know, well, what's your favorite shows? What kind of theater? And for me, there is the. Um, there's the Fiddler on the Roof, which I grew up grew up with. That's probably if I have to pick a musical that's favorite of all time, that's it. Whenever I'm at a party, you know, I do I can sing whatever. So I'll do if I were a rich man is my kind of standard at at parties and things. Uh, West Side Story, and even by the way, West Side Story, I get to interview George Chakaris, who won an Oscar oh, nice. for playing, yeah, mm-hmm. for, for playing a Bernardo, and when we become good friends, he does jewelry. By the way, he's made a couple of pieces of jewelry for me. Uh, it's oh, just wow. fun maintaining the relationship. But anyway, these days. I mean, shows like Hamilton, um, like Wicked, like Dear Evan Hansen, I just think they're amazing. Yes. And so, yes. and because I love them to be able to say, hey, I'm going to get to sit with Stephen Schwartz. I'm going to sit with Harvey Firestein. I'm going to sit with the folks who did this, created this, Jerry Mitchell, who directed and choreographed all of them. Uh, and be able to do this is just uh, astounding. Chicago, we have, a, there's a new show coming. It's pre-Broadway. It's called Paradise Square. Uh, it'll be in New York next year. It's going to Broadway, but it's starting here, as many shows do. Uh, and so being able to sit with the cast and creative of that show before it even gets to Broadway, it's, it's just really exciting for me. So. That's what, oh, yeah. I enjoy, that's what I enjoy listening to. And that's, um, you know, I, I can't, I don't, I don't get modern music. I'm not, you know, I'm not a rap fan. I'm not a, you know, or some of the stuff where every other word is a swear word. I'm not, I don't want to be, I'm not a prude about it. I don't care, but it's just not my thing. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. I was, I was somewhere the other day and somebody asked what kind of music I, that I prefer to listen to. I said jazz. And then she kind of looked at me funny. I said, well, classical big band like that. Like yeah. my mother was a classical pianist. And so I, I was raised on that and I love jazz and, and I love most music, you know, but I'm kind of like you are. It's like, if I don't care for it, I don't judge it as wrong. I just listen to all these things over here. <laughs> exactly. You know, and so sometimes I'll, I have a, a tambourine used and signed by the Smothers Brothers because I love the Smothers Brothers humor uh, right now. Kay Ballard, if you remember Kay Ballard, yep. the, the actress, yep. she was a good friend of mine. And I'm I'm talking to her, uh, uh, her state, so to speak, about getting, she used to play the flute and stuff about, about 
getting uh, getting the flu. I, I should mention you you mentioned the museum early on, and I I, I did all of this like everything's in my house. Um, the, the Museum of Broadcast Communications has what is the Paul Lisnick Gallery. Now it was lovely that they did that, but that of course came because I financially helped the museum stay alive. So um, so there that's where the, it came from. That so that's where the gallery came from. So uh, part of it is just a tribute to my career and things that I've done, but also I put on loan there a variety of things from my collection. Um, mm-hmm. So I have Bob Hope's jacket from Vietnam, which I interviewed his daughter, Linda, and, you know, what a thrill to tell her I had. Um, and um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's notes uh, from his show. I mean, just all sorts of things. There's right. a long story, Kathy Garver from Family Affairs. She gave me this pendant. It's too long a story to tell, but she, she gave me a pendant that she wore during the show. And the way they taped that show back there, Brian Keith would do his scenes and then he would leave. And right. there were, were continuity issues all the way through the rest of the season. So anyway, she lost them. She wore it to a party and she lost it. And um, so they they had to go find a replacement. It's different, but that's what she wore in the show. So she gave it to me as part of my memorabilia collection. And a few years after that, she called me and she said, guess what I just found? And she found the original pendant. The original. Now I, I have both pendants. Um, the original, whatever. And that, of course, on loan to the museum. So, um, yeah, it's it's about owning that and having the, you know, loving the fact that I have this piece of history in my world, but also knowing that it, that, you know, it, it goes on loan as well. There's a TV show called Collector's Call. And my collection was featured the very first show of the series. Um, season one featured uh, some of my, some of my historical stuff. We focused on the historical. Oh, that is, I just love that. I'm going to put links to all of these things in the show notes so that you guys can go check out what Paul is really doing. And I'm also going to put links to all of his social media things so you can follow him and um, let him know you heard him here on the show. So I have, I have one final question before we end. I could talk to you forever, but I'm very aware of your time and you've been so generous. And so thank you so much. Uh, I have one final question and I, and I, I'm excited to hear your answer. We're going to put a billboard up that the whole world is going to see with your message on it. What do you want the world to hear from you? I think it would say, give back and make a difference. Beautiful. I can make it longer, but it's too long for a billboard. So yeah, a billboard. Uh, it's short and sweet. Give back and make a difference. Give back, make Paul Isnick. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on the show with me today and just sharing so freely. And I'm inspired. And so I'm sure everybody who's watching and listening to us is inspired as well. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. By the way, if anybody gets the books, I always make this offer. I'm, I bought a thing of book plates because I know people like signed books. We can't do that these days. So um, if, if anybody does get it and they just send me a note on Facebook or whatever, I'll, I'll sign a book plate and mail it off. Oh, perfect. I'm going to do that because I'm get I, I'm buying your books because I'm like, yes, I want to get them. And um, I'm excited to read them. I am a big James Patterson fan. I was I helped out with one of his um, book signings and his sister is a very close friend of mine. And so I went to help wow. out with this book signing. And in the advertising, somebody said, you know, or they put out he would sign four books a person. But he got there and he said, I will sign every book and I will talk to every person. And he was the most kind, generous, giving person. He signed every single book. And there was a line around the building. It took like seven or eight hours because I was the person who stood by him and made sure that nobody was harassing him, made sure he had pens and water and all that. Like I, I was the one helping. And I listened to one generous, good, kind comment after the other for hours and hours and hours. And he did not stop until the last people went through and was totally, you know, one person brought in like, I don't know, 20 books and he signed every See, one I of think, them. 
That's great. I, I really respect, and no surprise to you, I have a signed book collection. No surprise to you, I have the latest book signed by Bill. It's a presidential signed book collection signed by Mr. Right. Patterson and Bill Clinton, of course. Right. I wish I had known you at the time because you might've just brought it with you and had him do it, but oh well. Right. It would be, right, <laughs> but it's like, it's one of those things that that generosity and that caring along the way matters and not waiting until we're gone. So right. I love your, I love your billboard. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diane. Appreciate it. So remember, everybody, keep your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star and you're here on purpose with a purpose. So go out there, let your light shine and leave a legacy now while you're alive. Until the next episode, be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.